Father, we thank you that you gifted us with your son, that you sent him to lead us to you, to worship you, to love you, to know that you have created each of us special, and we are so awesomely blessed that we can't even count them. We thank you for this day. We thank you for the fellowship of other Christian believers, and we just ask for blessings on those and peace throughout throughout the world in this special, special season of Advent. We ask this in your Son, Jesus Christ's name. Amen. Was that much better? Okay, um, Jack, I need to get a sport coat like that. That is sharp. That is awesome. <laughs> you don't think I can pull that look off? No. All right. Okay. As always, um, questions are welcomed. Uh, there is no such thing as a dumb question. Uh, we are in a controversial topic called angels. Does everyone have a handout? If you look on the back page, this is what I would like you to do if you would be open to doing it. You don't have to put your name on this, but there is a whole sheet. You can detach it now. Uh, it would be extremely helpful to me if during the course of this class you jot down any questions that you have. Now you can ask them today, but just because it's a one-time session, I can pretty much guarantee that we're not gonna answer all the questions, but it would be great for me, helpful to me, when I prepare for the course on angels uh, in February and March to know the kind of things that you asked. Um, I gave a presentation last spring at Maslin Public Library on angels, and that's how we set it up, and it was really helpful to find out exactly what people are thinking. So, uh, with that said, go ahead and detach it and right away. Okay, who can tell me something about Galileo and what the significance of Galileo has been for not just Western culture, but for the whole world? And I don't mean the turtles. whatever they were. What were they called? Um, ninja Turtles. Teen, teen, teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. I'm not talking about that Galileo. I'm talking about the other one. He, he was an astronomer, among other things. So he did study stars, study the planets. You know, uh, we're going to need some more chairs. Um, anyone that would like to help with that? <coughs> That's it? He was a philosopher. What is the singular thing that he's known for? Yes, Susan. The earth is not the center of the solar system. What is? The sun. So he moved us from what is called a geocentric perspective of our place in the solar system to what? 
a heliocentric view. And of course, when he first came out with this proposal, not a proposal, actually an observational fact, and announced it and published it, some people of a religious persuasion were very much opposed to this idea because they said, look, the Bible says that, uh, you know, Genesis 1, that God created the, uh, the sun, the moon, and the stars. And if you read Genesis 1, it's certainly written from a geocentric point of view. It's written from a perspective point of view. But the religious people of that day did not understand that, that it's just a perspective. And they said, well, this can't be true. There must be demonic entities living in your telescope. Because Galileo said, come and see. I'll show you through this telescope how this is true. Okay, um, they eventually excommunicated him, made him get down on his knees and renounce his scientific writings. And then about 20 years ago, the leader of that particular religious group wrote an apology to Galileo's descendants who are still alive on the earth today and said, he was right, we were wrong, now everybody agrees that the sun is at the center of our solar system and we revolve around it. Now, so what? I mean, other than it's a cool scientific fact, what did it do for human beings? Uh, how so? How did it make humans less important? We're tagging around the sun, whereas people used to believe before Galileo that the earth was the center, not only of our solar system, but the center of the entire universe. And of course, that makes what? Since humans are the greatest life form on this planet, that makes humans what? The, the greatest, yes. We, we were at the center of all things. Now, all of a sudden, we find out what? We're not. No, you're not. And it gets worse and worse and worse if that's the way you want to look at things, because... Uh, now that we have the Hubble telescope, we find out what? That Earth, our sun, is what is called a medium-sized star of which there are stars that you could put a million of our suns in. And we are a tiny little tiny speck floating in this cosmos that's like billions and billions and billions of years across. And unfortunately, Dr. Smith, people have then moved uh, based on this physiological finding, this uh, uh, astronomical finding, they have moved and it's degraded the importance of human beings. That's not necessarily a move that you need to make. It doesn't mean humans are less important. But that's the way people took it. Yes, Susan? What got destroyed was an interpretation, but the truth of the Bible didn't get destroyed, and it took Christians a couple of hundred years to get with the program and say, now, okay, wait, wait, wait. This doesn't really mean that humans aren't very important. Uh, it just means that the way we used to look at the universe is different than it really is. Okay. What's our time frame? Uh, 500 years ago. Galileo? 500 years ago. Did not know this. Yeah, and so the Roman Empire probably got some of its attitude. Probably, <laughs> right? We're at the, and so you can always blame everything on the Italians. 
And I'm just kidding. If anybody's, I know, I know, I know there's some Italians here. I know. <laughs> Are you going to make me an offer I can't refuse? <laughs> um, now, uh, of course, if you're ruling the world and you think that this earth is at the center of all things, then, of course, you would have an inflated view of yourself, you know? So this is one of the cool things about Christmas. Jesus Christ and God's sovereign plan, uh, they incarnated Jesus, the Holy Spirit, and the Father, put Jesus on earth at what time? At the height of the Roman Empire when the world was being ruled by people who thought that human beings were the height of all things. You remember the old philosopher Protagoras? Sure. I knew you did. Do you remember what he said? Man, and of course right off the bat we start off with a sexist comment. He didn't say humans. Man is the measure of all things. What does that mean? Man is the measure of all things. The We're the standard of all things, okay? So that's the viewpoint. He was a Greek. You can blame the Greeks too, not just the Italians. But they had a very uh, anthropocentric, you know that word, anthropocentric? Human-centric point of view. They viewed everything as it related to humans. Now, why do I bring all of this up? So this, this revolution took place, and it's only been 500 years since Galileo discovered it. It's only probably been about 200 years in which human beings have really accepted this po uh, point of view. So it, we're still in the infancy, basically, stage of human understanding of the cosmos that we live in. So now today we're talking about what? Angels. Wow. So this is a corresponding challenge to an anthropocentric point of view, a human point of view, human-centered point of view. When you bring angels in, because the Bible clearly tells us what? In relationship to humans, angels are what? Higher? Lower? Higher. And if you carefully scan the scriptures, you find out that angels are way higher and that they're actually arranged, even though the church has tried to give a absolute cosmic taxonomy of their arrangement. It's not been done to anybody's satisfaction yet. But just the very fact that some of them are called archangels means what? That they're higher and they somehow supervise or are uh, benevolently ruling and reigning over other angels. So there is some sort of order to them. And uh, now we find out what? If the Bible's telling the truth, not only does this universe not support the idea that humans are at the center of all things, but what? There are other entities, creatures, that are far superior to humans. So it's another challenge to this, we're at the center of all things. Now, having said that, before we talk about the nativity and the role of angels in the birth of Jesus, I want you to turn to the first page of your handout, and we're going to look at three passages. First one is 1 Peter 1. Sorry, I made a typo. It's not 1 to 12, 10 to 12. And if you could find that passage, we actually do have Bibles at this church 
so that some of you who <coughs> forgot today. Okay, now, let's start off with Terry Beat because she loves to read and does a good job of it. You could? Uh, warm. Uh, she said angels have, she paraphrased it, she said angels have an intense desire to look into what man is up to. Warm. Dustin. They have an intense desire to know the will of God. They have an intense desire to know the things that pertain to the will of God. Now let's just stop right there before we even read the passage. What does that tell you about angels? They're not omnipotent or they're not omnis omniscient. They don't know all things. They have the capacity to learn. Okay? So yes, they're superior to humans, but in the sense that uh, they're still creatures. They're not God. They don't know all things. So this passage says, Terry. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied of the grace that was to be yours made careful search and inquiry, inquiring about the person or time that the Spirit of Christ within them indicated when it testified in advance to the sufferings destined for Christ and the subsequent glory. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves but you in regard to the things that have now been announced to you through those who brought you good news by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. All right, now first thing I want you to look, notice, what does it say about the prophets, the human people that God inspired to write the Bible? What does it say about them? They're receiving the prophecies, and the core of their prophecies are what, according to Peter? What, are, what were they really about? The sufferings and the glory that was to follow of Jesus Christ. So they were Christocentric in their prophetic words. But they're living before Christ, and so they're getting partial downloads, pieces of information about the suffering of Christ and the glory to follow, and of course these are two uh, uh, sort of like uh, opposite type of ideas. Some of the prophecies have to do with what Jesus would suffer. Some of them have to do with how he would reign and rule in glory, and they're like struggling trying to put this together. How could it be? And so they're, they're going crazy. They're receiving revelations from God, but they can't get what? The whole picture. The whole picture could only come into focus when Christ came. So that tells us something interesting about the prophets. Even though they were chosen by God, they didn't know everything either. And they scrambled and studied and read each other's prophecies. Daniel is very honest about it. He's scrolled through and drilled through Jeremiah's prophecies and learned from them. So they actually read each other's stuff and learned. So they're, they're digging into their own scriptures to find out what's going to come. God finally had mercy on them and said what? According to Peter. Ah! This is not for you. This is for people later on after Christ comes, and then it'll all be laid out, and people will understand this was part of God's cosmic plan to bring Christ to be. So then they kind of cool their jets and say, well, I'll never see it, but thank God someday God's going to work it all out. Now, let's contrast that with angels. Prophets drilled into the Bible. Angels do what? They watch us. They watch us 
But as the, now that the plan has come, now that Christ has come, what does it say that the angels long to do? They likewise want to look into this. They find this entrancing. They find it amazing that their superior, Jesus Christ, actually incarnated himself and became a little mud puppet. And I know that's offensive to you humans who are out there thinking that you're the center of all things, and it's offensive to me either, but compared to angels, what are we? You gotta, we're little mud puppets. They are, they are exalted spirit beings, and they see all these little, we're kind of like their pets. So think about it. What if God incarnated himself into your house as one of those little weasels? Or what are those little things that squirrel around and steal? Ferrets. How would you feel if God became a ferret? You'd be like, huh? It's funny, I know. It would be cute. Yeah, but it would be entrancing. You'd want to understand what's going on. How can that be? How could God humiliate himself? Shouldn't God come to earth and be as awesome as God is in heaven? No, what Jesus came as a humble little baby and, and then started working out the plan of salvation. Angels are intensely interested in that, which again tells us what? About them. They're learning. They are learning as God's plan unfolds on this earth. They are drawing observations about God, about humans. They're learning. They're growing along with us. Cool. Next passage. And we'll have uh, Phyllis, why don't you read this one? Ephesians 3, 8 through 11. I don't have it yet. Okay, well, you'll find it. You'll get there. Ephesians 3, 8 through 11. This is just all background material that we have to understand before we can really appreciate what's going on at the birth of Jesus. <coughs> I didn't bring my Bible, so. Jack's right. got it. Ephesians 3, 8. Okay, go ahead, Phyllis. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles that unsearchable riches of Christ and to make all men see what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things, that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the principalities and powers in the heavenly places. Okay, now Paul says an amazing grace was given to him. He considers himself the least of all the Christians. Why did he say that? False humility? Why did he consider himself the least? He was what? Bad actor? I thought you said badass, but that's... <laughs> oh, the badass of all times. <clears throat> okay, 
whatever you want to call it, bad actor, bad. Yes, he tried to stop the mystery of God. He tried to kill Christians. He thought that Christ was the leader of a cult and it was seducing Jewish people away from the faith, so he did everything he could in his formidable personality to stop it. Then Christ converts him and calls him to do what? What does he say his calling is to do? To, to proclaim the mystery. I want you to focus on this. It's a key word in Paul's thought. The mystery of the good news to the entire world, to everybody. Okay. And uh, this mystery, when Paul uses this term, he, he means something that had been previously not known, but now is being made known. And there was no way that you could know what God was going to do previously until it really started to unfold. Even the prophets looked into it and couldn't figure it out. So now Paul has the mystery, and he's proclaiming it to all the people of the world. And as people are being converted, there's another audience involved here, according to Paul. What's happening in the cosmic zone? There's also all of the uh, dead saints that are watching this. When I say dead, I mean physically dead. They're alive in God. The communion of saints, they're watching. But who else is watching? The entities, he calls them the powers and principalities or uh, whatever terminology he uses there, in the heavenlies, the cosmic powers, they are learning as the good news spreads throughout the world. We, Christians, are now a witness to the angels. Isn't that amazing? They are learning about God through you and me. Now think about that next time you ponder doing something wrong. <laughs> yes, Christ, th that's part of the mystery, right, Dustin? That Jesus Christ has become incarnated a second time in each one of us, and as Christ lives in us, he's living out and they're watching this. They find it amazing. They want to learn about it. Yes, Dan. So, so angels are spirits. <clears throat> they have direct access to God at some level because they praise Him continuously. But they weren't, they weren't given the option of redemption. They were only given the, the, their relationship to God is a judgmental relationship. And so that's part of the mystery, the intrigue that they see in us, that, that they, didn't, they weren't extended redemption. Uh, that is a pretty good inference, and the next passage that we're going to look at really uh, deals with that. They, they may, that might be part of the interest that they have. Why is it that mud puppets get a second chance and some of us didn't? Because they certainly understand God better than that. Oh, for sure. Because, again, they're in some sort of hierarchical arrangement. So some of them are actually standing, you know, in the direct immediate presence of God, and then there's levels of access, and I don't want to get too specific about it, but uh, based on the nature of a creature and its spiritual capacity, that allows it to have degrees of access to God. So they, they do that, and of course they understand God far better than we do, but now God isn't just allowing them to learn about God through that means. Now God has said, okay, now I want you to learn something else about me. And how are you going to learn it? Angels, watch what's going on among the mud puppets. 
See what I'm doing among them, and then you'll learn something about my wisdom. That's what Paul says. You're learning true divine wisdom. Somebody had so, their hand. Dustin. I, that has always been a question of mine that I've been struggling with. Angelic spirits are incapable of... I, I prefer not, if you don't mind. <laughs> <laughs> hear you. Angels, angels, spirits... Uh, so therefore, I mean, it's, it's widely understood as such. I don't think they can be destroyed. They were created by God. They are spirits, so they'll never be destroyed. But their, but their order is, a ju- is probably not based on redemption. It's based on judgment. They, 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 are, they are probably judged by God. All right. Well, I'm glad we brought this up because it, it leads to a so great... therefore, I, I guess my next logical conclusion would be, therefore, this intense hatred and disdain of the fallen beings toward us. Uh, yes. One of the reasons that they hate, some of them hate human beings, is because of the smarting resentment that we have now become the objects of God's love and are being redeemed, and they know they can't be. So part of their resentment is to destroy... Yes, they hate us because God is working out his plan of salvation in us, through us, and they're out. Now, you might say, well, I thought God was perfect love. Why would they be out? So let me use this illustration to try to help us understand that while you turn to Revelation 12, which next spring or winter... This is Ohio, so who knows what it'll be, February and March. Uh, We will study this passage more carefully. Now, of course, this is apocalyptic literature. It's all symbolic. It needs to be decoded. It was written in symbolic terms because John was writing in a time when Romans were persecuting the Christians, so it's code language. It's like hip-hop for the Christians. All right. Now, before we go into that, how many of you have heard of this notion of the unforgivable sin? Jesus talks about it. Is that right, Susan? Jesus talks about this in Matthew 12. He says to the Pharisees, you are about at the point of committing the unforgivable sin. Why did he say that a particular sin was unforgivable? He said there's only one that's unforgivable. What is the the sin that the Pharisees did? Well, Christ comes and he begins to give them evidence over and over and over again until they hit this crucial climax. He's doing miracles. He's doing the works of Messiah. He's teaching completely in accordance with the scriptures. He's giving them every sign and wonder and teaching that would confirm the fact that he's the Messiah. And as that notion is starting to dawn on people, this is the Christ, this is the Christ, this is the Christ, the Pharisees at a certain point say, because they have to make a decision, because the whole flow of the culture is going towards that conclusion, this has got to be the Christ. If this isn't the Christ, who could ever be the Christ? And the Pharisees say in response to this claim that Jesus is the Christ, what? No, he's not the Christ. And so then they say, well, how do you explain all this? 
they say, oh, that's easy. It's, an, it's Satan. It's Beelzebub that's working in and through him. And that's how we explain the fact that he's able to do these things. Now, to get to that place, now, it's not just saying no to Jesus. That's not the unforgivable sin. Lots of people say no to Jesus. But it's the next step that you say, okay, I agree that he exists and I agree he does all these things. But what he really is, is Satan. Now, when you get to that place, when you call white black, when you say vanilla is really chocolate, when you deny reality at that point, you can't do that just easily. You have to work at it. You have to come and have such a deep rejection of the truth of God that the master says, as long as you hold that position, that's unforgivable because what we find out elsewhere in the Bible is that the Holy Spirit does what? Does anybody remember from Beyond Beliefs what we learned that the Holy Spirit always is doing with all people? Persuading not yet believers of sin, of righteousness, and of judgment. He's secretly persuading people. You should accept Jesus. Look at his works. You need him. You need him to take away your sins. The Holy Spirit himself, God, is testifying to them, asking them to look at the evidence. And when you say to the Holy Spirit, I think that's a lie. You're lying. It's a big lie what you're telling me. You're calling God a liar. So it's not just saying no to Jesus, because we all did that at one point. That's not the unforgivable sin. It's saying no and simultaneously saying everything that God has testified about Jesus is a lie. When you do that, it's unforgivable. Why is it unforgivable? Because if you reject the only one that can forgive you, what else is there? Okay. John, yes, Dustin. I, in, in light of this, the story we're given in Revelation 1, I, I struggle with this concept of unforgivable sin when the reality is that prior to this given of time, the manifest presence of God, the deception was so powerful that a third of the angels were deceived into believing that God is not good. Yes. Now, let's follow your lead here, Dustin. They're standing where? Before, this is before humans even existed. In their ranks and orders, they have direct access to God. So here we are, the little mud puppets down here, and we have this little block of evidence. Christ has come, and he does all these things, and God is testifying to this and asking us to believe. And we're so low that we actually have to be lifted up by demons to even do a good sin. They have, to, they have to tempt us to do a good sin, to do serious sin. That's how low we are. They start off where? In the presence of God. And in that light... When you say, and of course, if you really want to get into this, and we will, but you can read this afternoon instead of watching. You're not going to watch the Browns today, are you? 
Yes, instead of watching a gladiatorial spectacle on earth, you can read about one that took place in heaven. Satan said, I will be as the most high. That's why I always tell people that the most wicked, evil song that was ever sung on earth was I did it my way. Again, an Italian. <laughs> oh man, am I going to... I know, take the gift back. I did it my way. What does Satan say? I will be as God. So, look at it from an angel point of view. They didn't always exist. There was a time when they didn't exist, and then boom, God brought them into consciousness. When God brought them into consciousness, they were now aware of an entity telling them, I made you, I'm God. Did they know that for sure? They can't, they're not omniscient. So they had to do what? Just like us, they had to have faith. They had to have faith that their existence, their consciousness, was predicated upon this entity that's telling them, I made you. So one of them, the one that we now call Satan, whose actual name in Hebrew is Hael. Do you recognize anything similar about that, Hael? Because the Hebrew name for God, generic, is Elohim. So God names the highest angels with that L in the back end. Like, for example, Michael, or the one that came to Mary and to Joseph, Gabriel. They're named after God. Well, this one, Hael, got it into his mind as he's sitting there pondering the magnificence of God. How do I know that this entity actually made me? How do I know that? And he thought about that, and thought about that, and thought about that. Then he said to some of the other angels, how do we know that this entity that we call God actually made us? Because you have to remember, they're not mud puppets. Every time they appear to a human on earth, the first thing they always have to say is what? Be Don't be afraid. They are grand and glorious creatures. They are completely awesome. And, you know, God probably mediates or modifies his reality to all entities. If God actually showed us, he could have just absolutely overwhelmed these angels and showed them. But if he did that, then what? They don't have a choice. But now we have another issue. Angels also have will, just like we do. And God gives them a greater glorious picture of God to them but he still provides them with a choice. They have to choose and have faith. And some of them, at a certain point in time, who knows when, said what? No. Now, if you say no to God at that level, it's tantamount to doing what? Calling God a liar. You're now saying in light of all the revelation that God has given to you, that no, I don't accept that you are God. I'm going to be my own God. I will be as 
the Most High. And of course, implied within that is if you're like the Most High, then what do you think Hael wanted to have happen? What did the other angels give to God? Worship. So when he takes, as Dustin has pointed out, according to Revelation 3, he takes one-third of the angels with him. Why did they follow Hael? Because they bought the lie. But they bought his lie, which means what? Instead of trusting the one that said that he was God, they then said, well, Hael's point of view is not only equal to, but superior to the one who is God. So Satan therefore became as God to them. And now they're following him. Later on in the course in the spring, I'll show you. They're, they are arranged under Satan, just like the good angels, the two-thirds that didn't fall, are arranged against God. Now, I'll stop there. Who wants to comment? It blasts me, too. Huh? It blasts me, too. Well, Well, now wait a second. You remember, it's not just saying no. Well, it's You'd have to get to the place where you say not just no to the works of the Holy Spirit, but you'd now have to say that all the things that God is doing through the Christian church that are somewhat supernatural, you'd now have to say, even though they're being done blatantly in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, you'd have to say what? No, these people are actually under the control of the devil. And you'd have to maintain that position. So, Dustin, your point's well taken. If you're progressing this way and denying the works of God that are being done through the Christians, you're on the road to that. You might not necessarily have crossed it yet. Does that make sense? So you say, well, why wouldn't God forgive them? Now, here's the last final twisty. It's not that God won't forgive them. It's if I get a key I lock this door from the inside take the key with me throw it down in the abotomous pit and say whoops <laughs> see that shows you just how great God's grace is it always opens if I lock it from the inside and I say I will not open that door to God's grace then God has a choice what can God do A, you can be left in the closet, locked in, because you took the key with you and threw it in the bottom of his pit. Or B, what could God do? Break down the door, grab you by the shirt collar, and make you worship God. Well, why doesn't God do that? I'm sure he never has. Didn't he, in a sense, do that with Paul? Ah, yes. but remember... 
as Paul is on the way, do you remember what the master said to him at his conversion? Saul, he says it in Aramaic, Saul, Saul, how hard it is for you to kick against, depending on the translation. I'll put this one up here for you, Dr. Smith. The goads or the pricks. Well, now this is a farming metaphor. How do you get a cow or a donkey or an animal to move when it doesn't want to move? You get a little shocker. Or in old school way, they had a little sharpened point. I worked on a pig farm one time during uh, <coughs> my college vacation. Have you ever tried to get a pig to move? <laughs> Those things are like monstrously solid. I punched one of them and my wrist collapsed. They're, they're totally solid. So you get these little sticks and jab them in the rear end and that's the only way you can get them to move. So all the time that Paul is throwing Christians in jail and blaspheming and saying all these horrible things about Jesus, the Holy Spirit is doing what? Goading, pricking, giving him evidence. One of the principal pieces of evidence that he gave was Stephen because Saul, Paul saw the glory of God on Stephen's face when he gave that brilliant sermon, a total tour de force through the Old Testament, culminating in the climax that Jesus is the Messiah. And he says, the Bible says his face was radiating like an angel. And Saul sat there and watched that. So God's been speaking to Saul. So it's not like he made him. That was just the final climax. But hey, you know what? Paul could have still said what? So I would agree with you that that was strong evidence. But even to this day, when you read Bible scholars uh, of a certain persuasion, what did they say about Saul? What's their explanation? Did he really see the risen Christ? What did they say? You don't know? He was an epileptic. Sunstroke. And he was such a conflicted person that all of a sudden stuff snapped inside of him and he did what some people who are uh, uh, fanatics do. They switch radically from one position to another. So Paul could have said on that occasion what? I mean, if Muhammad appeared to you tonight and told you that you were in a cult and that Islam is really correct, what would you say? Try again. So just because you get a strong miracle presented to you doesn't mean that you absolutely have to believe. I'm talking about what if Christ would have appeared to Saul and then he would have said, no, I must have had sunstroke. I must be so conflicted about this that I, uh, I, I just can't accept that. I can't believe that Muhammad is really the prophet of God. I can't believe that Jesus, this false prophet, is really of God. If he would have done that and then went on and finally threw away that key into the bottomless pit, then God would have had to do what? But he already tried to rescue him. He sent the goads, the pricks, the revelation. But doesn't, doesn't, God, doesn't God say that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and what? every mouth will confess? Well, yes. Ah, there's a difference between worship 
Which always implies what? Submission. Willful worship, self-submission, and I grudgingly admit that yes, indeed, Jesus is Lord. That's what Paul says. Everybody's going to eventually say that. Some are going to say it willfully. Some are going to say it against their will just because, like, some people have to admit what? Wow, Galileo was right. You know, I don't like it that, that we're a speck in the cosmic sea, but he was right. They grudgingly admit it. Some people are still holding out that we didn't really stand on the moon. Do you know that? It was a Hollywood stage production by our government. Those rocks in the uh, NSA, NASA uh, laboratory museum are not really from the moon. They're from someplace in the desert. Eventually, God's going to bring everybody to the place where that, he, that we recognize that Christ is Lord. But that's not worship. So you like this system? You think God should just overwhelm everybody to the place where they all say yes? You, I, you know what? Emotionally, I wish that would be true. I've, I've scoured the scriptures. I wish I could find a place where it says, yes, God will compel everyone eventually. But the only thing I can say standing within the circle of scripture, scripture is, if a human or an angel gets to the place where they absolutely de deny sufficient and adequate and almost overwhelming evidence, if you deny it to that place, then you cross a line, and it's not unforgivable because God won't forgive. It's unforgivable because why? Because you won't receive the forgiveness. Now, put that in your mind. It's not unforgivable because God won't forgive. It's unforgivable because you refuse to be forgiven. Because to be forgiven, you have to admit what? That I'm not the most high, and that I did sin. And if an entity won't admit that, then they remain unforgiven. Well, these are all great things that we'll talk about in the spring. Yes, sir? Uh, one thing is bugging me. You said you bad-mouthed old blue eyes about it. <laughs> <laughs> I was just a joke. <laughs> yeah. Correct. I don't know that. Uh, here he is on his deathbed. At the end of his life, he did an interview. Somebody asked him point blank, do you have any regrets? What did he say? No. No. So he did, at the end of his life, he ratified everything that he had done. No, no. No, I wouldn't say that. I did it my way. At the end of his life, they ask him, how did that work out for you? And he said, pretty cool. Now, I don't know what happened after that interview. He's laying in his bed. Maybe a priest came in and communicated him the grace of Christ. I mean, you can't get much closer to the end point than the thief on the cross. Right? And what did he say? I think I'm going to... I think I'm going to revise my life and world view. I think I should be forgiven. And the master said what to him? 
today you'll be with me in paradise. So, no, no, I'm not saying that Frank Sinatra or anybody didn't, isn't saved or that Christ doesn't keep working on them to the very end because the unforgivable sin is only unforgivable if you retain it to the grave. Jeffrey Dahmer became a Christian. Uh, yesterday I watched um, uh, a show called Monst Mobsters, Inc. And it was about a woman who was the uh, cocaine queen pin. Uh, what was her name? Uh, yeah, she was the Florida queen pin of a major cocaine ring. Vicious little wench. Killed all these people. Brutally. Finally got caught, got thrown in prison. Guess what? Became a Christian. Now she's in South Central LA running a ministry preaching Jesus. It can easily happen to anybody. But this has to be renounced. And she publicly says now, oh yeah, I was wicked. I did all this bad stuff. God gave me a second chance. So I hope, thanks for letting me clarify that because I'm not anti-Frank Sinatra. I'm just saying that People are always railing against uh, Led Zeppelin and uh, Kiss as evil. And we have to open our eyes. If I did it my way, that's, ooh. My, my Jewish friend, I've talked about him before, he, that's the thing that he, why he rejects Christianity. He says that's not right. You could be a bad person all that time and get forgiven on your deathbed. That's not well, right. it's not just Jewish people. Most people. It's like my grandmother taught me. And she wasn't Jewish. She was just good old Russian. She told me that for the first seven years of your life, nothing gets counted against you. All these good, you're considered good. Then when you turn seven, everything bad you do and everything good you do starts getting put into these scales. And at the end of your life, if the good, I'm sorry, the good outweighs the evil, if you get one of these scores, she said what? Heaven. You get to go to heaven. And if the evil outweighs the good, then you're lost. And she assured me that even though I had a seven-year head start, that by my eighth year, I was so wicked that I was... <laughs> that I was well on that path. <laughs> so I can remember, I honestly, I know you think I'm crazy, but I can remember on the eve, at the end of my 14th year, on the eve of my 15th birthday, I sat in bed and said, well, I had seven good years and seven bad. <laughs> now it's really gonna start counting. <laughs> this is a typical human belief that we are saved how? Now I'm joyfully here today in a Presbyterian church that teaches what? The grace of Christ, Ephesians 2, 8 through 10. It is not by works that you are saved, but by faith. It's a gift of God. So it's not just Jews. It's all of us have to reconcile this notion. And again, this is the part of the move of moving away from being a human-centered perspective on life. We're so anthropocentric and so human-centered that we think, what about ourselves? We're good. We're not out there ra raping and pillaging. We've done enough good stuff. I pay my taxes. And what we don't understand is we're not being compared 
to each other, who are we being compared to? Christ. When you compare yourself to Jesus, then you come to the realization what? You didn't match up. So God's good news to us on this Christmas is, no, of course you didn't match up. And so I'm going to cancel this system and give you the good news, which is what? Christ in you, the hope of glory. I'm going to save you by grace, even though you don't deserve it. Which then you have to humble yourself and say, what about your works? They aren't sufficient. Yes, that's a very humbling thing to say. I was not good enough to save myself. I need something for the first time in my life. I've been a success in life, but what, my, what I did with my life is not adequate, so I need the grace of Christ. So it's not just Jewish. It's, it's a human thing. Plus, we know now what about many Jewish people? One-tenth at least of worldwide Jewry has confessed Jesus as Messiah. One-tenth, 10% are believers in Jesus as Messiah. And I don't know, you can compare the Greeks, the Italians, the um, Polish, the Russians. Russians. (laughs) (laughs) I I don't know what percentage of them authentically really believe in Jesus, but I would make the case that probably proportionately about the same amount of Jewish people believe in Jesus as the Italians, the Greeks, and the Russians. And we need to clarify that because a lot of times... So people that aren't Jewish, they say, what about Jewish people? Why? They don't believe in Jesus. Why don't they believe in Jesus? You could just go around the world and ask yourself, well, how come all those people in um, Lithuania? Lithuania? (laughs) Why don't they believe in Jesus? Well, because what's God doing in this world? What did Paul tell us? Proclaiming the mystery to all people Everybody's getting a chance. And who's watching this? The angels. Yes. Now we're back to where I was going to ask you. Principles, authorities. Is it all supernatural that was referred to? Because this isn't the first time we've heard this terminology. Our battle is not with... Flesh and blood. But with... Yeah, that's a good point. Supernatural that's watching... I don't know what that terminology means. Okay. Um... Some t- oh, go ahead, Dustin. The way I've understood it and the way I've seen it take place is that this realm of angels, this demonic, this fallen angel, if you will, will set itself up within institutions and structures that are created and can manipulate individuals, but collectively as entire institutions and structures that we've created to rule principalities and powers, but they're actually governed. All right, I'll, I'll repeat it for him. He said that what he's come to believe is that the earthly rulers, the earthly institutions that have organized themselves on this earth are actually on some level under the control. Remember that Ephesians passage qualifies it. He says the powers that are in the heavenlies. So there's heavenly uh, rulers and authorities and there's earthly rulers and authorities and Dustin is saying that the heavenly ones that are evil have insinuated themselves on some level not, not, he's not saying total control 
but some level of influence on the earthly rulers, and therefore the earthly rulers wind up doing what the evil heavenly angels want them to do. Hey, by the way, how did Jesus die? Who killed him? Satan or Rome? Uh, the Jews accused him and caused the crisis, but who actually stapled him onto that tree? The Romans. Why'd they do it? Because he's a troublemaker in their role. Remember, we studied this. What was their goal? Pax Romana. You're not going to create a problem here for us. This is how we deal with people that create political disturbances. We put you up on a cross. By the way, did you know that, um, according to Josephus, that Pilate crucified over 3,000 Jews during his reign? And one time he got so ticked off that the entire road leading into Jerusalem, he put every so uh, distance, I forget what it was, every 50 yards or something, he put Jews up on the cross so that when you came into Jerusalem, all you saw was body after body stapled up onto a tree. And what was the message? Don't mess. With Don't mess. Pax Romana. You mess, you're going to end up on a cross. So for Jesus, you know, Pilate, in his point of view, Jesus was just what? Just one more little... Jewish punk that needed to be taught a lesson. One of 3,000, no big deal. He wasn't like worried about it. Now, how, what do you think? Was God inspiring Pilate to do that? God was allowing it, but did God inspire it? No. So the heavenly powers that ran Rome and were controlling to a certain extent Pilate caused Pilate to agree with the Jews, this guy needs to be crucified. So what you can conclude is, is that the USA of that day did what? Jesus. Crucified God. What does that tell you about the earthly powers? That they're capable of doing great evil. Hey, by the way, did you go and see 12 Years a Slave yet? What happened in our country on a systemic, organized, agreed upon level. What happened? The USA agreed that African people are worth three-fifths of white people legally and therefore they are chattel and therefore what? You can do anything you want to them. Is that good or evil? Was God behind that or not? No. So what Dustin's point is is that in the earthly institutions, what demonic entities, fallen angels, do is that they influence earthly rulers to make decisions that systematizes sin so that sin, therefore, becomes what? Accepted. Accepted. Now, go see 12 Years a Slave because Brad Pitt plays a little cameo role in there, and he's always worth seeing, right, ladies? And he has an argument there with this guy. He's a Canadian. He doesn't agree with slavery. And he has a discussion with one of the slave owners. They have like a little dialogue and debate. And the, the guy that owns the slaves is like, what are you, out of your mind? I own these people. That's my property. I can do whatever I want with. That guy has become so deceived and so deluded 
that he thinks he can treat another human being however he wants, godly or demonic. And it's so easy now, we're in the 21st century, we look back on this and we say what? But if you were back there, 1835, and your economy was based on this, north and south, not just south, that slavery was the greatest amount of economic wealth, the slaves themselves far outweighed any other uh, financial wealth that the United States owned. The slaves themselves were worth more than any other financial wealth. If that was your system and you're looking at this, what do you think you and I would have concluded? I hope that some of us would have said, that's evil. But it's easy for us with historical hindsight to say, but that's Dustin's point. And I totally agree with that. So here's the solution, Dustin. When you find, or also Dan, when you see this term, rulers, what you have to make sure from the context is, is he talking about earthly rulers or is he talking about heavenly rulers? Then, after you make that distinction, you have to see what they say in the context. Are they talking about earthly rulers that are trying to do God's will or are they talking about earthly rulers that are manifestly opposed? And so I just have one minute left. So the birth of Jesus. I mean, the birth of Jesus. Who cares about him, right? I know, Pam, I know. Now, wait a second. At Revelation 12 says whoop, that the great dragon stood in front of the pregnant woman waiting for her to give birth to her child so that the dragon could devour the child as soon as it's born. We know from the symbology that the woman stands for Israel. Israel gave birth to who? Jesus, the Messiah. He's not talking about Mary. He's talking about the whole nation. Jesus came from the Jewish people. The dragon stood in front of Mary and tried to devour that baby when it was born. How did Satan do that? Who's the principal person that's described in the Bible that tried to do this? Herod. So Herod is the earthly ruler, but Herod's operating under what? The power of Satan. Tried to kill Jesus even at his birth. And the angels did what? Now this is my final point. What did the angels do in this? Get out of town. Herod's going to try to kill you. So they flew down to Egypt, got away. And why did the angel do that? Because it was part of God's cosmic plan of salvation, which the angels are watching, and they're participating in helping. Can I just add on what he said? You can do anything you want, yes. Well, I don't want to. Within reason, yeah. Your point is very well taken. That's clearly the biblical teaching, that it's not just the individuals, it's the individuals that comprise a society, that construct sinful structures, that then oppress people. Because the structures themselves are so complex that no one human can understand the ramifications of their actions in the context of the greater 
So now how can we tell, Dustin, and this is the final thing. Based on what we learned about angels, and you'll do this, you'll do the second part of the study today, right? You're not going home to watch the Browns. The next page has got the whole, the whole thing laid out for you. How can we tell whether the angels are good or bad? The one thing that they always say about Jesus in the, in the birth of Jesus is what they always call Jesus Lord. And they always, whatever they say, always agrees with the scriptures. You'll see that if you do this study. So one of the ways that you can tell in a society, whether that society is being run by the fallen angels or by the good angels, is does that society, does that group of people, do they confess Jesus as Lord and are they doing what is in agreement with the scriptures. That's how you can tell who's in control. Okay, I'll talk with you afterwards. <laughs> Goodbye, happy Christmas, Merry Christmas. And uh, I will see you next year. Come back in January.